I think it's fair to say that I've been a bit dejected and fed up with flavor notes in their current form uh, or the way that they've ended up being used a lot in, I don't know how we want to define specialty coffee, but you know, this, this thing we're in. And uh, when you reached out to me and asked about doing this, I was really keen because I think you're, I'm just saying, look, should we have them at all? Your approach is completely different, which is saying they don't work properly. There isn't a structure here, but there could be, this is what it could look like. And we can learn from, from wine. Is that, is that right? Yeah. I mean, I think that's, that's a pretty good overview umbrella of it. You know, the, um, the, I understand your perspective on I don't like flavor notes because I'm actually in the same boat. I don't like flavor notes either. Um, like particularly when I'm drinking coffee, I don't like them um, because normally they're either uh, wrong or they're presented in a way that doesn't add to my um, experience and often doesn't recognize why I'm having the beverage. Um you know, you don't, you're not always drinking a coffee because you want to be taken on a journey. And sometimes, in fact, I would say always, you want to experience it before you're taken on the journey. And if it's an interesting enough experience, you might then want to know more. I feel like tasting notes is the fastest way to either be baffled, misguided, or have all of the surprise ruined, you know. Um, and so... I guess the, 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 the kernel of the idea came because I just, you know, I enjoy drinking. Well, I actually enjoy all of the, all aspects of hospitality, whether it's food or wine or things like that. And a lot of travel around the world by myself for work has meant that I would often be sitting by myself and eating a meal and having a drink or whatever. And so you only really have your senses and your experience. And so I just, you know, I got into, um, I guess, mentally picking it apart. And, and as I did more of it, um, I started to realise the value of, I guess, cross-training for, for coffee tasting. I think that coffee tasting is probably one of the hardest forms of flavour identification just because of how many compounds there are in the process and how many steps there are in revealing what you taste and how you really need all the stars to align to get a great coffee tasting experience. And so I started studying wine because I wanted to just ha have another um, a learning experience with taste. And, and I was introduced to this wine matrix. And um, I, I think it was almost that, you know, that immediate synergistic experience where you, you, the light bulb goes on and, and, um, you know, having gone heavily through all of the SCA tasting protocols because of, of being a Q grade instructor, I, I immediately recognized how much value there was in their system um, and how um, valuable no, that could be to coffee. Yeah, just, to, just to, to jump in there, I just want to touch on that for people who don't know. Um, <clears throat> I think a lot of people who get into coffee early see the flavor notes they're presented with them at every level of their experience and that they almost believe they're the primary legitimate approach to tasting and when i did my flavor note video a bunch of people were like yeah logically you've got a point here max but people were terrified they were like what do i do without flavor notes? <laughs> and um what was interesting Drink was coffee 
yeah, drink a coffee. <laughs> the funny thing was, right, someone messaged me on Instagram and said, hey, I've got this. Um, they told me about this special coffee. I think it was like a Javanica or something. It was an interesting cultivar and it had been through an interesting process. They explained the whole thing to me and they said, you know, if I don't have flavor notes, how do I describe this coffee? I'm like, you just described it. You just told me everything about this coffee that makes it interesting. Anyway, my point was going to be Q grader, right? Uh, tell me if I'm yeah. tell me if I'm right or wrong, but Q grader does not prioritize the use of flavor notes hardly at all. It, it, it encourages flavor notes to be written, but sees them as a subjective and focuses on point scoring instead. Yeah, the uh, yes um, is the short answer, and um, and with. Uh, It'd be really hard not to perjure myself, but the uh, the there are so many flaws in how it's done, and more importantly, it's less about that. It actually is quite a good system for what it needs to do. Yes, um, you need an immense amount of training and practice to do it properly. Um, however, it's often tried to be uh, utilized further down the track and utilized as a coffee describing tool. So and just, it, it, just to be clear, that the, the primary purpose um, of Q is a, 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 supply a supply chain assessment tool as coffee moves its way through. It's not a consumer facing um, tool for description. Is that is that what you're saying? Like, just explain what you think where Q should be used and where it shouldn't be used. Yeah, absolutely. That's exactly what, what it's, its purpose was to define the, the border of high quality coffee production and flaws in the coffee production that can be assessed and, and fixed in terms of farming, processing, picking, drying, all of that stuff. Um, and, and that was its whole purpose. You know, it was, it was put into practice for that. And that's, you know, if you look at the original tasting wheel, it's firmly divided between coffees that have processing flaws and coffees that don't and and that was the that's kind of where it stopped um and and so yes it does a great job of giving a technical score to a, a product that then gives it some additional or some market separation on its value however it doesn't take it it's got its own roasting protocol its own tasting protocol it doesn't take into account um use of uh, processing once it gets to its halfway user i.e the coffee roaster and then it doesn't take into account brewing when it it goes through a filter device or an espresso machine and then it gets to the end consumer and and so um that like just from how it was designed to how it's how where it stops and, and how it sort of tries to be extended um is already i guess disjointed However, I think it also goes into um, intellectual physio physiology, you know, how your brain works, how we use our senses, how we can process information. I think it's flawed in the fact that it asks you to effectively multitask. Mm. You know, you're being asked to identify uh, all of these experiences, you know, and rate its its practical objective yeah. side. Then you also have to give it a qualitative thoughtful um intellectual process as well and give it a score and i don't think that that's i mean there's there's already studies that show that the brain doesn't like doing that anyway you know no, the brain I, listening to your senses yeah i found myself the brain, when, yeah go no when, when i score coffee the way i had to figure out how to use the system 
was I basically taste it and and forget about the system, think about what I just think of the coffee in general in my own way, where I would put it, and then I break it out into all those scores. And obviously, what I had to learn was how to take what I think, attach it to scores which which sit within a framework, which I learned to do. But I didn't do it by going through each individual one one by one because. I was just well how do you do that like I, I just taste this thing and I taste it all at once and then I have to put quite a lot of effort into breaking it into all the boxes yeah it's pretty convoluted right yeah um, and it's certainly exceptionally difficult for people entering into the process um, and I just don't think it's logic I don't think it's smart physiological flow like human flow it doesn't work well and and that probably was the most um, glaring value that I saw when I was studying the, the wine syllabus and, and tasting language and things like that, because it's divided into two categories. The first category. I just want to, on the wine one, I had a few questions for this. So quite a few people in coffee in the UK are doing their W set wine. They're the one I haven't done these. So as far as I understand it, number one's pretty easy. Yeah. <laughs> Two's a bit more challenging. It's going to ask a bit more of your time and you have to invest a lot. And three is pretty, pretty damn hard. Um, I'm in and, the middle of three at the moment. It's pretty hard. Yeah. Uh, so, so you are doing the same curriculum that the W set in the UK will be doing. Is this a global structure that everybody yes. uses? Exactly the same as Q grade, but it's for wine. Right. And which body, and, do you know where uh, the body is that's in charge of WSET? I was just intrigued that one of the challenges I think about when I think about structures in coffee is you're right, yeah. Q-grade is used pretty predominantly. And then it's taking a structure and getting the world to adopt it now. Like it's almost like if something was started a while ago and when there wasn't a lot around, it was able to become predominant worldwide. And it's quite hard to come up with a new approach now and get it adopted globally yep i agree uh, the, i think that um there's a combination of familiarity uh complacency but then there's also there would need to be a lot of vested interests um relinquishing power and uh i mean it'd be very easy to get into i think we could very easily get really sidetracked and just talk global politics and global yeah, no, no, of course. And, I, I wanna... which we probably don't want to right <laughs> um but i think you know i think that it, it's it's human nature that everyone wants to protect what they have already developed and you know people obviously receive um significant either status or or financial um compensation for these ideas and these structures and things like that and people would be very reticent to add an additional one unless I guess unless there would be a way of somehow complementary dividing the two I mean they're already divided anyway like from from a from a design standpoint they're not designed to do the same thing mm. however at the moment we try and make the one system achieve all the goals and and I don't think it does yeah, so in so just just to clarify with the wine approach though, wine doesn't have the equivalent of a Q, or it does. It has the hundred point system, which no. is the same as the W set. So, is there two two approaches in wine? Is there? Uh, in terms of wine, my understanding, and and I'm going to have to be um, wonderfully naive in this process, and I may accidentally say the wrong thing. However, uh, my understanding is the WSET language prepares you for master of wine 
um, which is the is the highest level of um, certification for sommelier profession, um, and that is that is not about scoring wines. Sommeliers don't score wines for producers. Sommeliers deliver wine experiences for consumers. Um, and in terms of the process for all of that, it's purely about tasting skill and an outrageous amount of knowledge, knowledge yeah. to associate. Yeah. It, it's like the it's like the taxi, the UK taxi book, the knowledge. It, it really is full on how much you need the, to know. The knowledge one is what interest one of the, my uh, sort of thoughts I've had over the years about the challenge with coffee is is the lack of like as structured appellation approach and stuff as or like regional uh, styles of wine that you know it, it, if the historical wine world is more structured not like the natural wine movement where i don't i see the bottle i, I know nothing about it <laughs> um which i actually struggle with to because i've got no expectation i can't navigate the flavors it's literally just like pick a bottle and see what comes out but it's probably good having no expectations because I think most of those bottles are flawed. Yeah, but that, but my, my point sort of was more that, you know, we've got some structure in coffee. We can say, okay, yep. you know, one of the things I used to, if I'm talking about flavour notes and, you know, I get annoyed with from a judging point in competition, if I put a washed Yerga Cheffy grade one in front of you, which is of a high quality and it's typical of that <clears throat> kind of coffee and I say it tastes of bergamot, lemon and black tea, like, by all accounts, everyone should say, yeah, there's some pretty fair flavor notes for those for that coffee, which which doesn't happen. Um, but we could take a few coffees like, you know, certain Brazilian coffees, Colombian, let's say Colombian coffee before it got really experimental. So all Castillo, Cachura, Colombia washed coffees. And, and you can have some structure there. But I feel like we're encouraging in, in a way, especially we encourage that slightly more natural wine approach of try anything everywhere like it's not structured and so one of our worries to structuring stuff is we don't have the, the same um yeah the same structure around the world as to how people grow coffee saying okay well if it tastes like this and this you can expect it to be from this region etc so uh, i'm glad yeah. you brought that up actually I, I guess that's that's one of the second or third years maybe it was the first year of what i wanted to talk about um and so I think we need it. I actually think the coffee industry needs that. And the reason that I think it needs that is currently, if we look at how coffee's priced, um, outrageous processing methods get a lot of money. And yeah, but also just, just to be on the, on the weird process one, it's mm -hmm. actually, I think, potentially quite um, an apparent and clear description of flavor by virtue like if you say to me this is anaerobic like I think I know how that's going to have an element of taste to it so it actually is a taste descriptor as well yeah yeah I agree um and, and that's that's part of that's why it's a multi-phase description and it takes into account terroir it takes into account interaction from the maker and it takes into account um the the any storage conditions right which if we put that into um, coffee, I think it should take into account terroir varietal. It should take into account processing method. It should take into account roasting because I think that that divides it into three categories that have significant impact. And the thing about that at the moment is processing method terroir varietal has been squished together. 
and roasting is ignored. And so you can have someone that gets their Q-graded coffee um, that scores 92 points and maybe it deserves it, maybe it doesn't, whatever, don't care. And they absolutely roast it to perfection or they don't roast it to perfection, but both of them get to sell that as the same coffee. They have wildly different tasting expectations. They both call it 93 point fancy coffee and the customer gets it. And one of them tastes incredible and is a, is a transparent version of what it is. And the other one tastes horrible and they go, well, that's disgusting. I can't believe I paid that much money for it. I'm never buying a XYZ process from wherever of this ride. Or, you know what I mean? And it has a really damaging effect because we're not valuing each phase. Conversely, you get coffees that are so processing heavy, it doesn't matter how you roast them, you only <laughs> taste that. So, like, you know what I mean? Like there's, there, there's so many bits where I feel that that's the opportunity for us moving forward. And it's why I think we need some of those things that wine has got to, where if you define what is high quality, what is medium quality, what is low quality of all of those three phases, and then you stick it together as a, an encyclopedia of this varietal tastes like this when it's exceptional, like this when it's not, like this when it's really poor, this processing method tastes like this when it's exceptional, medium, poor, and roasting, et cetera, all of a sudden you start to see that if I grow this varietal here, I get these exceptional qualities. If I process, you know, if I need to do all of this to process it well, I get exceptional qualities overlaid. And then obviously the roast is up to the roaster, but, you know, if I roast it like this, it has exceptional qualities or not. And then once we stick all of that together, it doesn't stop any of this exploration or any of this fancy processing methods or however you want, or planting, whatever you like. But it does start to say, hey, maybe this version doesn't work where I am. So I'm going to do the stuff that works really well here. And that's going to equal the value because it's an exceptional version of this, not because it's a Gesha process with way too much extended fermentation in Panama. You know what I mean? Um, and, and I don't, I don't say that targeting any specific producer whatsoever. I just had to pick something that yeah, I yeah, think yeah. everyone... But see, it's a good reference. Experience, but you, know, you know what I mean. They're really great points. I think that complexity, which is the difference to wine, is, is not just the roasting, but the brewing, right, as well. So, yeah. Um, and I think I, I will often... I'm teaching someone, and you do a lot more teaching than I do. I just sort of teach my staff or the people I meet, or, you know, I like to talk about coffee, but... I like tasting coffee with people and that analysis piece, I think it takes years to get to the point where you can quickly go, oh, actually, this is the roast or this is the age of the green coffee or this is brewing and be able to sort of successfully split those apart. So you can actually have a conversation about where the good or bad flavor is actually coming from. Um, and that's really what we lack. Like you say, the whole industry sort of because of the purpose of Q it's like this This is identified as a well-harvested coffee done. And then everything else um, after that is a challenge, right? Yeah, uh, everything after that is not valued and it's allowed to be complete subjective personal preference or opinion or, or just, you know, smoke and mirrors or whatever. The, um, the Everyone's allowed free reign. And I think that's a massive disservice to both the people producing the coffee and to the customer. Do you think, um, I remember when I got into coffee at the beginning and there was a master of wine who came into my shop. Uh, I think he was like one of the youngest master of wine. At least he told me he was. Uh, <laughs> um, 
And he said he really envied the barista role because he said, look, we do a better job of having a product in a bottle in wine, but it means that someone can just pick something off the shelf and they don't get the sommelier guidance, right? And the fact that in coffee, it has to be prepared well means that you, the role of the barista is more valuable. And then the customer goes, well, I trust you to get a coffee that's roasted well and brewed well, et cetera. Um, and I think there's pros and cons there, which I was saying because of lockdown, I think that historically in the specialty movement, the barista often held the keys to the, to the mansion of great coffee is that to go and get good coffee, the consumer felt they had to go to a good shop with a good barista. And now I think people are, are buying better coffees at home. And I think, I don't want to go off topic, but a lot of cafes are buying a coffee to sell that hits their commercial tick points as well. And a customer buying a coffee for themselves at home can treat themselves to better coffee. Then of course, there's the knowledge piece of brewing and they're all desperately trying to buy the right equipment and do the online barista course and figure out how to make it well. But I guess it's a pro and a con, right? Which is like the master of wine said, I'm sitting there wishing my product could be put in a bottle like his because I get annoyed with all those variables, but he's saying that there's a value there too. Yeah. And I think both are right. You know, I think, um, I see my, my intuitive feeling when you told that story is that he's devalued his knowledge and, and that's actually the value of the familiar profession. Um, I can see his frustration when he doesn't get to use it, yes. but I know that every time I've had an amazing wine and normally food experiences when there's someone who has guided that process and put these two things together, you remember them for, for years. Yeah, I think to argue back to him, I would say that people are going to experience both wine and coffee without experts around and wine's going to do a better job at it because it's in a bottle already. <laughs> so, yeah, so if anything, exactly. you know, coffee's just struggling a little bit more because people are going to have more inferior experiences of coffee. Yeah, absolutely. I wanted to actually move to the, the flavor matrix that you developed yourself. Um, yes. And I wondered if you could talk us through sort of how maybe we'll, should we use your routine and the two coffees that you, you, you used and talk about how you assess those, if you can remember? <laughs> oh, well, you're pushing me. Um, I, well, I might be able to remember. I don't know I can remember specific flavor notes from, from memory, but I can certainly tell you, I know that I had um, a Gesha from La Palma uh, in, from Colombia, and it was a natural, a natural process coffee. The average temperature when they dried it was uh, around 22 and a bit, um, 23 degrees centigrade. It was certainly presenting lots of yellow tropical, yellow-orange tropicals. Um, it was presenting a little bit of green citrus. Um, it was a really elegant coffee. It was amazing. Um, I can't I can't remember the the full taste notes though specifically, but certainly they were the the clusters, the flavor clusters that it was in. Um, it was very elegant in terms of both its structure, in terms of its um, its expression of those flavor notes. They were very distinct um, and identifiable. Uh, in terms of um, how the matrix went, I divided it into um, three sections, well, four sections, really, in terms of assessment, it was assessed twice because we don't really assess aroma in coffee. Um, and if we do, it's fleeting. And it's actually not, it, it's not a particularly consistent experience I find out of coffee, like particularly filter coffees, things like that, pointless. 
Um, if yeah, you do by, get something, by, by aroma, you mean wet aroma, you mean literally smelling the beverage. Yeah, so like you've got your coffee, you smell it. I think if you wanted to add that phase to coffee assessment, you should actually smell the ground coffee. Yes. Because yeah. that is often very expressive and gives you a lot of in indication of what you're going to taste. Um, and so that's probably more relevant to if you wanted to add that on the front, you'd add that. But I didn't do that for the assessment. So two parts. The first part is we're just going to pull apart the taste notes, flavor notes, what you're experiencing. For each of those two tastes, um, I was having the judges in this case, or if you're using the matrix, you need to hold the liquid on your palate for 10 seconds. Um, and the reason for that is coffee's pretty hot. Um, it's pretty condensed. And so by holding it on your palate for 10 seconds, it does a couple of things. It lets it go through the temperature change that we would normally experience coffee with when we do a, a, a quality evaluation without having to do wait there for 45 minutes doing all of those passes, which is, is impossible with espresso anyway. Um, and it also gives you actually time to observe it. Just want to um, interject there just quickly to clarify a few things for people listening. I think how to taste it and, and how different people taste across the industry, like learning that is something people are really interested in. When you mentioned the, the passes, what you mean there is a cupping table where you're going around and tasting everything multiple times before you decide on your final evaluation, right? So yeah, tasting right. when it's as, as hot as you can get away without burning your mouth, somewhere in the middle and cool. Cool, yeah. And then what you're saying is with an espresso experience, it's nothing like that. It's uh, 10 seconds is a long time relative to drinking espresso compared to 45 minutes of, of going around a cupping table. I don't think, well, it is so uncomfortable and not a normal experience that uh, one of my judges during the world finals didn't follow that protocol, obviously didn't follow that protocol. And so, and that was being given the instruction with all of the, um, all of the backroom chat where they're told you must follow the instructions of the competitor. Right. And that's nothing against that per purse judge. I mean, at the time I had a, something against that judge, but now it's nothing against the judge. It is just such an abnormal experience, but um, for anyone that, that is, is listening, hopefully there's more than you and me listening to this at some point, um, if you want to try it, I actually really uh, encourage you to do that. And if, use a stopwatch. Don't do like 1, 1,000, 2, 1,000, because you want your brain, effectively, you want to go into your Zen flow and you just want to listen to your palate. You just want to listen to the, the palate and your, the, your olfactory system. And you just want to start to see, like, what can I identify? What am I tasting? It's over that 10 seconds and you keep getting more and more information. Um, and it, it be, it's super interesting and they're, they're complex and they're, they're very well-defined flavors. Um, whereas other coffees, you taste them and not that much comes out of it. You know, it's not a very complex coffee. But that process of taking the 10 seconds helps you find everything, I think. And, and because you're not judging it at the same time, because you're not trying to give it a score or an evaluation, you're just listening to what flavors are presenting themselves. I find... It's so fast to capture all of that information. Yeah, and then so second taste, right? Oh, let's go. Yeah, no, no. The, so, so that's the sort of physical that it's in your mouth, and then the the more cerebral bit of of now sort of trying to identify that. Uh, and is is the did you say four sections or three? I thought I remembered three, but is there four? It's, well, it's three because we don't do aroma, right? Ah, right. So the, there's a second taste. You have to do two tastes. The second taste 
is just structure. So if you're trying to do structure and flavor at the same time, it's too complex because the flavor is in your olfactory system. It's a flavor memory experience. Um, it's just the perception of, of chemical compounds. Whereas the structure and tactile is just your tongue. It doesn't do any flavor assessment. It's just checking out acidity, sweetness, um, texture, balance, body, all of those things. And so by separating those two, I feel that it lets you focus on those two things. And the reason that I put it in that order is my experience is that flavor memory is always the first thing that pops in your head. Whenever you taste something, mm. I never go, ooh, what's that acidity like? I'm always, I'm <laughs> always like, oh, hang on, I can taste apricot, I can taste orange. Oh, I can, you know what I mean? Like that's always the first thing that comes to, to my experience. Yeah, I I would, it's probably for most people. Yes, I would say in my experience, that's the case unless I struggle with flavor memory and then I jump straight to things like acidity. Yeah, so we don't look foolish like we don't know what we're doing. We can well, more, more, that, more that I'm just, I'm trying to describe it and I'm, you know, I like to think I'm an honest person. I'm not going to make up a flavour now. <laughs> At least I'm, so I, but I, but I feel like I, I can experience the acidity even if I struggled with a flavour note uh, reference point, right? Yeah, you know, I think that's, that was one of the important things when it got to the structure stuff. It was acidity, what's the level, you know, low up to high, medium in the middle and, and a plus and a minus. So that you've got five data points, um, sweetness, texture, body, whatever. It's all about low, medium, high. Uh, yeah, there's a, there's a problem there, which is that, um, you know, it, it doesn't, we as humans sort of associate a, a positive or a negative to either end of a spectrum, right? It, we find it quite hard to contextualize yeah. it. Yeah, and, and coffee's made that even harder because when you get a high acid coffee, it's often unbalanced and, and unpleasant. So it's automatically made everything equal. You know, we've got to this uncomfortable spot with the systems that we have where unless it's just down the middle and everything lines up, it gets, it gets perceived as poor um, or less good. It's interesting and though, right? Because, you know, historically some of the highest scoring coffees of all time you know, washed geishas from Panama wouldn't have had big body. Well, uh, yeah, and, and um, without wanting to get back into competition, I actually fought that really hard through 2014. Um, it was really difficult to get people to accept that coffee. It was far and away the most uncompetition coffee that had been presented and did yeah, relatively well just forever, I think. Yeah, just to stop you there on comps, I think a lot of people who are watching comps now don't realise that in the first 10 years, well, first 15 years of competition, you were really nervous about putting a high-scoring coffee through the espresso machine to judges. You basically tried to give coffees that were good specialty coffees but had a semblance of traditional espresso expectation to them. And the, you know, the fact that you have all these geishas and uh, experimental coffees now, that's quite new and novel. It took a while to break that barrier for the competition to be okay to have those coffees um, do well in that, in that format, right? Yeah, I don't, I don't want to talk out of school, but I have an uncomfortable feeling that mine was the first from memory that actually was received positively. Yeah, um, I could. I, I'm. I'm probably wrong. Someone will comment saying that I'm wrong, but if if it wasn't the first, it wasn't the tenth, you know. So um, sure. Yeah, and then in 2016, was, I mean, it it, it, it won, right? Berg won with a with a washed gesher, wasn't it? 
Yeah. So, um, yeah, it, it, it radically was against that style of coffee um, in terms of even just the score sheet and how it was structured. It was impossible to score well with that style of coffee. And so you had to modify it to suit the score sheet. And then all of these coffees that were, were selling for significantly elevated prices, they, it had to be recognised at a certain point that, well, hang on a second, maybe we need to jig it so these coffees that in the real world are the highest selling coffees, but yet they don't score well in our best of the world competition. That probably doesn't make sense. But let's get back to, let's turn all of that back around the corner to the matrix. The thing is, if we weren't evaluating the quality of these features at the same time as documenting what is there, then I think we open up a lot more opportunity to enjoy a lot more coffees, for a lot more coffees to be high quality. Um, and that's where the third section comes in. That's the only time when you actually start to think about, is this yeah, so a high quality? If we just use the, within the current uh, understanding of what coffee tastes like, which, which doesn't have provenance, it doesn't have links, it doesn't have, this is the best version of this type of coffee, et cetera. Um, you can still evaluate its quality. And by taking away all of the difficulties and barriers to just documenting your tasting experience well, all of a sudden we've got this wonderful document in front of ourselves that lets us reflect on our tasting experience through that memory, but also look at it in front of us and be able to now use another sense, which is our eyes, to how many tasting notes have we got? How expressive are they? Are they positive characteristics? Are they negative characteristics? How has that structure and balance and tactile and all those things worked? Does it work together? Oh, it kind of works together. I don't need a massive cloying, heavy body to go with those florals and citrus because that would actually not be very good. Um, you know, all of those sorts of things. And you get to look at that at the end. And then you get to, to think about how many of these categories are good. You know, is the complexity good? Yes or no. Is the balance good? Yes or no. Is the intensity good? Yes or no. And by the time you have looked at that, you've got, oh, well, two out of the three was two out of the three was 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 good, one missed. So, you know, it's it's good, very good, excellent experience. You can you can then start to apply these um, these standardized quality. Get the raw sensory uh, analysis to be as uh accurate and as, as, as in-depth as possible, immediately focus on that because that's how you're going to define the other aspects of the coffee's quality anyway. So, so get really good at documenting your immediate sensory experience and then go through a secondary assessment phase once you've done that, which is where you start to talk about how that all fits together, where it sits, where the coffee's from, what was good, what was bad. Yeah, exactly. You know, if I, if I, um, if I give a, you know, a, a, an overview of when I'm teaching people the cue and when they have to do an evaluation of six coffees at the table, they're given 60 minutes to, to do that. And they quite literally are scrambling to finish their evaluation of six coffees at 60 minutes. Now, admittedly, there's some time for it to cool down and things like that, but that's an incredibly long amount of time. It, it's a minute to evaluate a coffee and be super thorough in what you've captured in terms of information, not just like, I like it, I don't like it, here's two or three tasting notes. You know, you really have a super thorough document of what I, that coffee's experience was. 
Yeah, like the reason I, I think sensory analysis has to be relatively quick is because your brain starts playing tricks with you after after that. So if you you need to keep it, you don't you need it to be long enough to be comprehensive, but quick enough to be as accurate as possible. And particularly if you've got flaws in there, you know, as soon as there's flaws, everyone gets this, the the you know the super doubts, the wobbles of of fear of being a fraud and all of that sort of stuff, whether they're capable or not. Um, and so, yeah, you give someone too much time in their brain, it's not good for, for outcomes. And, and the, the human nature to not want to look foolish by either over, under, misrepresenting whatever you're the doing. Tri- it's the tribe, it's mean, the group, yeah. Yeah, people constantly change their initial experience. Um, and look, admittedly, if you're new to it, you probably do need to doubt it a little bit. You do need to defer a little bit to someone who has more experience. We don't want to, I think that's the other thing that maybe has a little bit of, of um, opportunity to be improved in coffee is you know, a, a, a brand new Q grader that may have only been in the industry for a year that happens to have really good sensory skills can potentially become a Q grader who has the same status as someone who's tasted coffee for 20 years who has the same sensory skills but has 20 years of experience. Um, to me, that's flawed that they need to, like how can you have the same outcomes from that? Because either you're being coached or you accidentally got the same thing. Because how do you know what's good and bad if you've only been doing it for a year? No, completely. I think the, I mean, that's the super taster thing. And you can go and do these sensory tests to see how good your sensory organs are, basically. Do you have a good nose? Do you have a good mouth? But it's how to apply those uh, to like a flavor library is that just takes time, right? Yeah, there's no way around it. And I think that's why the wine, um, the wine certification to become a master of wine, the, the, like you said, WSET level one is just an introduction to wine if you've never tasted. And then level two, it gets a bit more serious. You're expected to start to understand what, each varietal's characteristics will be so that you could identify it. Uh, for level three, you know, it gets to the level of detail where you're expected to have the, the technical, theoretical knowledge of what flavours you'll taste from this same varietal in one village compared to another village because of the different terroir and all of that sort of stuff um, and be able to taste it as well. So, so you can either assume what it will taste like and prove it, or you can taste it and know where it's from. And then, and then we move on to diploma of wine. And most people take at least three and a half years to complete that. And that's just like brain melting level of knowledge. And that is considered the minimum preparation to go and become master of wine, which is like, you know, the, the, it's like watching that movie Somme or any of these wine um, yeah, I think- tasting experiences where you watch people blind taste these uh these these glasses of wine and they describe it well which is great like the description isn't quite as surprising for me but as soon as they then go you know this is this varietal from this country from this region from this farm and it's most likely this year it's like there's such an incredible amount of knowledge that you have sitting there so that when you taste certain things you can process that and identify where it's from that to me is is amazing and um, I actually wish we could get there for coffee and the reason that I think it's valuable and the matrix was just a starting point of that it was starting to put a tasting structure in place that can help 
achieve the outcome, but the value that I think comes from being able to identify what this coffee should taste like or where it's from because of what I tasted, it's because it means that you can then identify quality It's just from tasting it. It actually removes the need for it to be quality evaluated using the standard coffee forms and puts it into a consumer spot where you no longer need the differentiation of specialty coffee. Mm. It means I- that good through bad automatically shows itself in the cup because we've generated this knowledge and language and the skill to be able to do that there. And, and it basically puts the value back into the people doing a good job all the way through the chain. Yeah, I agree. I think I've been, I've been thinking that coffee just becomes, you know, what we work in is just high quality coffee. Now it's not specialty coffee or um, one of the things I think is interesting to compare to wine though, is I think there's two things. Clearly you outlining the potential journey you can go through to continue to educate yourself in wine is more, there's a, there's a, there's a better structure there, right? Like once you've done Q grader and coffee, a lot of it's self-learning. It's like you, you take it upon yourself to try and improve your knowledge and everything. I think one of the problems coffee might have is the amount of environments that allow or encourage you to explore identification of coffee flavor. And what I mean by that is one of the challenges we have with brewing coffee is to get a lead barista role and be good in coffee service. You're often working with a menu of like three coffees, right? Whereas so in, in wine, clearly, like the amount of jobs you could get either in a wine retail store, a high end wine retail store or a great restaurant where you have to have a great knowledge of a large menu of wine. There's a lot more opportunities to challenge yourself to become better at wine, I think, than there is in coffee. Possibly, but I think the people that will naturally gravitate to um, that form of learning and knowledge um, uh, finding will automatically have that same sort of experience. Like I would like to think that, you know, yourself, myself, a lot of people who are involved in um, in the whole process of sourcing, of visiting farms, of roasting coffee, of brewing coffee, of teaching people how to do it, um, being involved in competitions, things like that. I think we get a lot of, of um, exposure to a lot of different coffees. Mm. And, and I think that there's always going to be that thing. Like it doesn't stop the barista who's only using three from being around someone that has a better language for them to actually start to use. And Because I think that's the big difference. If you think about the rank and file baristas at the bar, yes, you're right. They use one blend probably for the entirety of their time at that cafe, unless the owner gets annoyed and changes over. So maybe two blends at most. Um, they might have a single origin program. It probably shuffles through three to six different coffees throughout the year. Um, And they might have a filter program, which is highly likely going to be those same three to six coffees, just roasted a bit lighter or worse. Um, And so, yes, they don't have much experience, but they're certainly not going to use the SCA form to learn about coffee, are they? Whereas if, if there was a head barista or if there was, their coffee supplier coming in and saying, hey, let's taste this coffee together and here's the structure of tasting it, then you've set them up to have the skill to quickly taste and then you can then they can start to slowly be exposed to the language. I think the opportunity to get a lot better at understanding your product, even if you have a limited product, is one of the big potential benefits of this way of, of looking at, at coffee assessment because it, it's 
the barista never really gets to be at that green sourcing level. So they're rarely exposed to any form of coffee tasting at all. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree, which is sort of, I, I was sort of leading there more to the opportunity um, rather than challenging the use of the system. More like, um, I think as the as a customer base grows who's interested in coffee, there's actually a higher demand for more educated servers of that coffee, right? Um, yeah. And so that's exciting. And I also think some of the lack of focus on brewing as the specialist part, it, that's shifting as well. People are less precious about coffee being made in a certain way. And, and hopefully over time, we'll have a more presentation of more coffees on a menu or in a retail experience. And then more of the conversation will be about, um, about coffee and the way it tastes. Because that's one of the things I've always noticed in the shop is I still feel like a lot of the customers' questions are around brewing, mm-hmm. and it's—I have no doubt that, that, that I think that that's—and it's probably because they're taking coffee home. Yeah, you know, you think about that, but I think the—I think once we get that under control, and it's—and like you said, it's always going to be part of coffee. You don't need to practice to open a bottle of wine. I agree. It's very easy for someone to get curious about the options because they don't have to learn anything about serving themselves that product, right? So we still have to have, it needs to be a a dual stream process. We still need people asking, how do I do this well? I hope that by going through that decade of extreme um, complication of the process of brewing, that we've worked out how to get roughly right with being able to jettison most of it. And so that we can help people learn how to basically brew to a high enough quality that they're doing a good job. Um, Cause I don't think many people want to put in the effort to move from good to outstanding, but I agree. There's a massive barrier to getting to good. And the, but, uh, just, just on the flavor matrix, I just want to um, yeah. sort of wrap up the, that process is so, so we talked about the scent, how you document, how you physically experience the sensory uh, yeah. evaluation of espresso documenting that immediately and then something I remember vividly about your process was breaking down those flavors into primary, secondary, and tertiary. And then yeah. effectively being able to say, okay, I documented that flavor. Now, where does that flavor sit? And therefore, where do I attribute that flavor to in the journey of the coffee from plant to cup? Yeah. And look, at the moment, it was very much um, one of those things where you have to take some educated guesses because we don't have a library document of, we have some experiences, we don't really have a formalized library of this equals this, this equals this, because like you said it earlier on, there is so much um, natural wine coffee being made that, that there isn't uh, enough consensus yet anyway. However, I mean, I, I had actually asked, what I really wanted to do was to one of my green bean importers and I was like hey have you got cupping notes of all of these coffees forever and they're like yeah I think we do because I think that would be an amazing resource yeah I think you're right you you go statistically rather than um you rather than just jumping straight to pinpoint you say let's see if we can find some statistical correlation here between the flavor notes we've used consistently yeah yeah just flavor cloud like because you know how many importers are that have been that have been sampling pre-ship samples whatever and and evaluating coffee for for 50, 60, 70, 100 years, well, right? From a flavour note point of view, I totally agree. Yeah. I was going to say that I think inherently 
flavor notes from importers tend to, I, I, I find are a bit more accurate than flavor notes from roasters because I think they tend to be having a conversation cross industry with multiple stakeholders. The roasters just sat there in their roastery going, what are we going to stick on the bag? Um, whether that's true or not, I don't know. They still do move all over the place, but I was going to ask whether wine successfully, but wine sort of branding doesn't seem to lead with flavor notes, right? It leads with identity. Yeah, it leads with um, the from from lower quality up to premium quality. It leads with um, location. It leads with varietal. It leads with increasing levels of certification effectively, mainly for uh, old world wines compared to new world wines. But like, for instance, with, um, you know, like French wines, you get to, you've got Appalachian, you've got Village, you've got, um, so i.e. you've got Region, then you've got Village, then you've got Specific Farm, then you've got um, Crew, and then you've got Grand Crew, right? And their levels of quality, like uh, ongoing quality historically, and narrowing of what can go into the bottle. And so that tells you enough information to be able to know what quality level you're getting because almost everyone, I think, by the time they're an adult, knows the rough characteristics of every wine and every varietal Yeah, because they've experienced it and they've gone, oh, well, I like this version and I don't like this version. There's there's an exposure piece, right, which is that's what I struggle with with the flavour notes in coffee is we're exposing a lot of customers to a pretty useless (laughs) description like there's no consistency. And what I, I was joking, like, you know, with my mum, now, now she's got like a base. She's, she's realized that the coffee she likes from rich origins, even though that's not an absolute marker for her because there's different flavors within those origins, it's more useful than, you know, a fruit flavor note. Absolutely. And, and this is where I think that by saying we need that association of flavor notes to specific causes, is so incredibly important for customers because the the primary barrier to that tasting note having any form of value is that roasters can do either a great or a terrible job and then they're just trying to cover their ass with whatever they put on the bag. And, And the bigger problem is you can get exactly that same coffee from 10 different roasters and none of them taste the same, but no one gets called out on their quality because there's no language for it. We don't have things are so unless you you know unless you're a, a seriously experienced roaster slash taster slash brewer slash coffee saucer at that point you can taste something and go oh yeah there's, there's an issue here at the roast there's an issue here at processing there's an issue here at the farm level with picking there's an issue here at brewing but um we need a, a better language to i guess keep everything more honest down the chain right so that as the customer you can go into a coffee shop like your mum, and go, well, I really like coffees from Colombia that are natural processed, right? And that gets you into the zone of, and then you're like, and then you taste it and you're like, well, that roaster hasn't done that particularly well because it's muted all of these things that I like and it's pulled out these things that I don't like. You know, I'm not going to buy their coffee again. And then you go somewhere else, you try, oh, I really like how they do it. Maybe I'll try all of, I like their roasting style. Maybe I'll go and try all the different coffees from them. And then you can start to get a sense of, oh, this origin tastes like that. Uh, and, and so it lets customers always have a good experience because they're going to things that they will have a preference for. But yeah. then it lets them choose what level of quality they want to pay for. 
Precisely. And there's still like always an element of chance, right? If you don't buy mm-hmm. exactly the same coffee from the same roaster or you don't buy the mm-hmm. same wine from the same year, there's always some variation. But it's about saying, look, if you're into flavor, you don't mind exploring things. You don't mind a little surprise. In fact, you like yeah. that. Like You like a little surprise. Yeah. You just don't want something that's not even close <laughs> to what yeah. you don't want to waste your money, right? Yeah, exactly no right. No one wants to waste their money. And I mean, the the it's it's kind of such a hard thing to to summarize i i can't help but feel like there would be something about this way of identifying coffee tasting experience that would really precipitate a lot more um professionalism particularly at the end user i get that but and it's important narrative but especially the one i see which is sort of I see on the one hand a roaster saying we paid a bit more for green coffee and then their their roasters are working 50 hours a week, you know, on an awful wage and the same through to the cafes. And, yeah. you know, if there isn't enough there, the professionalism throughout the whole chain is is, is limited. Yeah, and and the sell price for the beverage is the, is the barrier. It is, yeah. And the thing about indie cafes is, is that the independent scene is the seat of the specialty coffee movement but i think the indie scene it is probably the inherently the least likely to stress test pricing or to logically think about cut price um do, do you know what i mean like if you're a chain yeah. or something you're going okay well let's try this pricing there see if it hurts sales and and flex a bit i used to work in a petrol station and you know every petrol station has a different price and it's it's relative whereas i i'm pretty sure in indie I'm, don't you think there's another challenge with the sort of craft indie coffee movement is that people sort of there's like don't want to charge they don't have the confidence to charge more but they also feel that charging more would be price gouging even though it's not like they kind of want to give people great coffee for nothing which on the one hand you're like oh well good for you like you know you really want people to drink great coffee on the other hand we've got an industry here which is going to really struggle if nobody charges anymore yeah yeah it's like that at what point do you have to value you have to add value the and it's such a tricky one, isn't it? Because there's so much transience and there's so much youth in the in the workforce, and I think that always presents problems um, because the the like that idea of a coffee professional really hasn't been going that long. Like someone that can turn it into a career. The I feel like I was kind of entering the scene at the beginning of it. You know, it, it, everyone always spoke about barista turnover, people who are at uni, people who couldn't get any other job, whatever, they were moving to something better, right? And the ones that didn't have something better to move to got trapped behind the machine forever. Um, and, and I think that that's, that is a big barrier to that idea because we always have that influx um, and, and they're driving the industry. And someone who's at school, someone who's 20, someone who's 25, um, they're becoming the new shop owners these days. They they put it, but but they they don't have enough wisdom to necessarily have, you know, financial understand business understandings, market no, not, pressure. Don't you think we're we're not very good as a as an independent scene at sharing that wisdom either? I, I don't think we are from a business point of view. It's like each most of these independent businesses are in their own little silo, right? And that everyone's learned. Everyone who gets the knowledge gets it the hard fought way through experiencing it, not through benefiting from what's come before. 
Yeah, look, I, I, you know, I, I don't want to look like Mother Teresa, but I think that was a large part of my motivation for, um, for my business with, with that whole open roastery model where people are coming in, and it really is very much a, um, it, it, you know, people are getting the most incredible shortening of the path. Already, but Criteria Coffee, your project. Uh, I mean, you've been in coffee a long time, and you started Criteria. How many years ago now? Three. I started as soon as, as soon as I got back from 2018 WBC. And, you know, we had people coming in and starting to roast sort of October, November or so. And um, we got yes, some fans. It's, so. it's a, effectively a co-roasting space where uh, you've got your own, your own coffees that you're sourcing and presenting to people, but also a bunch of other, um, you know, individuals or businesses or projects are coming there to bring their coffee uh, idea to life. And, and I think what they're really getting by the sounds of things, is they're getting the opportunity to learn a ton as well. Um, yeah, well, I was going to say, like, originally I, saw, I thought, oh, I'll do a co-roasting space. But I think on reflecting on it, it's actually just an education centre. Um, and and the, the side product happens to be that there's some roasting equipment there that people roast coffee for their businesses, um, as well as any of the other learnings. Definitely the roasting, the sourcing and the sensory evaluation of coffee is, is uh, areas that I feel I can um, add a lot of value for people to help them get a good um, grounding in some fundamental skills. And so, um, yeah, it's, it's, you know, at the end of the day, we, it's actually just a great, it's a great communal space. Uh, hospitality people as a general rule are really warm and friendly. And um, I think it, it seems to have had some sort of alignment with when I was teaching the drums in that I always used to say um, teaching's pretty difficult, but no one, is forced to learn the drums. You only ever are choosing to learn the drums. And it's kind of the same for roasting coffee. There's no one's turning up to roast coffee every week who isn't really into that process of learning about the product. And so we just have a great group of people that come in and some need some help, some don't need any help. And everyone's sharing coffee and, and uh, you know, and, and, and I get to watch people do a great job. And, yeah, it sounds, um, it sounds amazing. Really I think... A lot of us get into coffee because of the there's this community aspect to it of sharing our experiences, and then we end up in businesses where we're not doing that. So I think it's amazing that you can build something which has that at the center of it. And the people, um, I mean, I presume then you're, you're sharing your thoughts on the flavor matrix with those with those people as well. So I think I was going to say we talked way earlier in this about the challenges of creating like a global you know structure for assessment or education but what the coffee industry is extremely good at on the flip side is 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 spreading ideas informally as well yeah and and i think that um that it's probably how these things need to seed anyway you know i think that the only way there will be changes or augmentation to the status quo is if it seeds enough that people create too much of a, a swell and momentum for it not to become part of it. Great to chat about this. Um, we should jump on again and chat about some other coffee stuff at some point. Oh, it'd be amazing. It's great, to, you know, having spent, what, close to 300 days now in lockdown and really not talking to anyone. It's awesome to be talking to, to someone, you know, even though it's a lot of distance. It'd be great to catch up again sometime soon in person. Cheers, Cheers mate. Take care. See you, Maxwell. Thanks.